This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity in Houston, Texas, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America. Please join us for worship on Sundays at 8, 9, and 11.15, and visit us online at holytrinityrec.org. Enjoy the sermon. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our sermon today comes from our Psalter reading, Psalm number 97. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, verse 12. Many years ago, I heard a pastor proclaim that religion can really make you weird. And what he meant by that was is that some folks, particularly in the Christian faith, will take their religion or take their practice and take it to some ridiculous ends uh, based on misinterpretation of Scripture or maybe even their tradition. Um, And a couple of instances, uh, there was one that I heard of a number of years ago when I was in seminary where the the speaker at the chapel was talking about having common sense when you were exercising your faith. And he talked about a man who was driving around Washington, D.C., and he came to a stoplight, and then when he looked to his right, he saw the Philippine embassy. And he took that as a sign from God to go become a missionary to the Philippines. So that might be one example that's relatively harmless, and you could debate whether or not that was an actual message from God. But there's others that are more profound, more, and have more effect on a person and how they view God and how they view themselves. Um, I think particularly uh, of those folks who are engaged in maybe more of the legalistic traditions of the faith, uh, where they, like the Pharisees, not only understand the Bible to be true, but they also, as the Pharisees did, heap upon them human traditions in which uh, they make it impossible to really follow God uh, with a good conscience. And Jesus, of course, was always butting heads with these folks, and he would always tell them that, look, you're putting a load on the people that you yourselves can't bear. So not only did they look at the law and see that as correct, but then they added on their own traditions to make sure that the law was never even close to being broken. And in that, people can have this rather morose view of God. Uh, They see him no more than maybe as a a dictator or uh, some fickle God that's out there willing to punish you for some reason, whatever it may be. And then if you go to maybe the other extreme of that, uh, we have what are known as prosperity gospel uh, folks who, when they look at God, they understand their relationship with him as being uh, one of more of like a child going to their parent and then asking for what they want and then getting it. it. It's an exchange in which if your faith is good enough, you uh, can exact from God what you want as long as your faith is quote-unquote strong enough. So when you go that direction, you have then an, uh, an overinflated view of yourself because now you think, whether you want to admit it or not, you have a power over God because you're saying that God in, 
essence, is obliged to do whatever you want him to do. And then not only are you looking at yourself that way, but you're seeing God as no more than a parent or who, uh, who um, basically spoils their children or Santa Claus or the tooth fairy or whatever, whatever have you. And such disparities between how you look at God and how you see yourself will cause you to not see God and see him as an object of rejoicing, uh, one in which you can take enjoyment from, but also one that you understand that is going to be true to himself, true to his promises, and true to yourself uh, based on what he's promised you. So as we look at Psalm 97, there's this theme of what it means to rejoice in God. The word rejoice comes up in three parts in this psalm, one in verse 1, one more towards the middle, uh, and around verse 8, and then at the end, it sums it up with the theme to rejoice. So the question becomes is, why rejoice in the Lord? Why do we come to church, for instance, every day and, or every Sunday and other times, uh, like during Christmas or Easter or Ash Wednesday, to celebrate God and to celebrate our union with him? Psalm opens up basically saying, let the earth rejoice that, there's, that the Lord reigns. This is a, a general and very, uh, uh, very general call for the earth, for all of creation to rejoice that God is where he is and that he rules over everything. But yet it doesn't really give uh, maybe a specific reason. If you're a Christian or if you were Jewish at the time and you're looking at the psalm, you're saying, okay, I understand that God is to be, uh, is to be rejoiced in, but why? What is the reason? And then this is what leads the psalmist to give us specifics. In verses 1 through 5, uh, it's the first of three parts of the psalm. He talks about rejoicing in God because of, for lack of a better term, because of his awesomeness. Uh, this isn't awesomeness in its vernacular, the way we would use it today, but in the sense maybe better explained as maybe the bigness of God or the glory of God. Um, he comes off right away talking about clouds and darkness surrounding God and lightning coming out and um, fire coming out from this cloud, basically defeating his enemies before him. Even the geography of the earth will melt before God as he comes down to be with his people. And this picture if you're looking at it in context, specifically if you were an Israelite at the time, you, your mind would probably go back to that point in the Exodus where Moses is going to get, uh, get, go up to Mount Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments. In chapter 19, it says right before he does that, God does the following. It says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had, Lord had descended on it in fire. 
The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And, <clears throat> and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So it's a little comical. We have Moses inviting the nation of Israel to go and meet God, and they tremble at his presence. It's not as though they come up and they're looking at somebody with whom they're familiar with day to day. Uh, the imagery captured in Exodus mirrors very closely what it says in Psalm 97. This image that's captured is what we call a theophany. It's a vision of God that people uh, see. And when soon after when Moses uh, gets the Ten Commandments, or after God proclaims it, I should say, <clears throat> the people come up to Moses and they say this, it says that they saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the smoking and the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So the people were so scared of what they saw, they were, fear, they were fearful of death. So whatever this looked like, it must have been pretty frightening. It was something that got their, not only got their attention, but probably caused them to will. Understanding who they were as God's people, possibly understanding themselves as being so uh, inferior to who he was, so imperfect, so sinful to be in the presence of the living creator. They had to ask Moses to go up and handle the receiving of the covenant by himself because they were fearful of death. Now, this would be scary indeed to the point of death if you didn't understand something else that Psalm 97 brings out. If you were to only see the fire and the lightning and the melting of the geography, you wouldn't understand that God isn't just a capricious God. He doesn't just go out and he throws fire at people willy-nilly. But it says here that he's a righteous, and, uh, a righteous God, and that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So not only is he scary to look at or that he's very awesome in his appearance, but that's tempered in the fact that we understand that God is righteous, that he has a means of delivering justice that's fair, uh, one that we can count on God to be correct in all of his judgments. And that in itself should give the people of God comfort, that they can approach God and understand that he is a God who is indeed fair, who is indeed the only judge who can judge perfectly. We go on from there on to verses 6 through 9, and in this section of the psalm, it talks about God uh, in his righteousness, what it means to rejoice in his righteousness. And in the first few verses down through verse 7, he contrasts the idea of heavens, the heavens pronouncing the righteousness of God with uh, those, of, uh, those who follow false idols. Uh, this kind of brings up the idea brought about by Paul in Romans chapter 1. He says the following in verse 20 of that chapter in the book of Romans. He says that... 
for his, invis his invisible attributes, namely God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So Paul reflects a little bit about what Psalm 97 is referring to, where the psalmist is writing that the heavens by their very nature declare the righteousness of God. And as Paul says much the same thing, everywhere around us, creation speaks to a creator. It's uh, the trees that you see outside, the person that you see next to you in church or at work or in school, or the many geographical features that you find around you day in and day out. When you look up in the sky at night, you see the moon and the stars. These are all indications that God exists and that God put in our existence so that we know that he's there. And he goes on to say that people, by contrast, who worship images are put to shame. And then who make their boast in worthless idols are put to shame as well. And that they're called to turn and to worship the Lord. So when you look at that, that idea of worthless idols, Scripture goes again and again into the, in, and delves into the fact that when people go off and they start to worship something other than God, that what they worship isn't a competing God. It isn't a competing divine individual. Basically, Scripture says that there is nothing else out there that competes for God's attention in the sense that there are no other gods. He's not the major God and there's a bunch of minor gods or there's not a competing God in another galaxy. There's only one God. In chapter 41 of the book of Isaiah in verses 21 through 24, God sets up a taunt to those who want to go off and worship idols. And the Lord says the following, set forth your case and bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring and tell us what is to happen, meaning the idols. Tell us former things, what they are and what they consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, do good or harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. And then he summarizes, he says, behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And this goes out as a challenge to those who think that there's many pathways to God or who think there are many gods. God himself is declaring there isn't. There's only one God, and that is him. And that is he who demands worship. And that those who don't, are basically silly. They are idiots. They do not worship the only God that exists. By contrast, he goes on to say that because God is the true God, the Israelites, Zion, hears this and is glad because they are in communion with the living God. And because of your judgments, O Lord, because of your righteousness, we exult in you. We know that you, God, being who you are, are righteous. And that you alone are most high over all the earth. And that you are exalted far above all gods. 
In verses 10 through 12, he gives us the third reason to rejoice. In this, he specifically focuses his attention on the saints of God. It says in verse 10, O you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. Or here, the rejoicing of the saints of God is because of his perseverance of them, or of his keeping of them. Um, in <clears throat> We find in particular in John chapter 6, sermon, uh, Jesus is speaking to the people of Israel, and he's giving them a very hard saying. He talks about how uh, the people of God or how uh, those who come to God, God to him through the Father will by no means ever be lost. And here Jesus is basically saying that those who come into covenant with the living God because of him and having faith in Christ cannot be lost. They can't be taken away from God. God God's purpose for them is to be with him forever. And because of this, because of their new identity as children in Christ, they are to refute evil. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says that because you are children of God, because you've been baptized into his name and have risen to newness of life, you're to flee from evil. You're not to participate in it willingly. Yes, you may sin, you may do things that are wrong, but you still have a God who forgives you through Christ. He goes on to say, light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. So following God isn't supposed to be a chore. It's supposed to be a joy. It's supposed to be something where we get up and we have communion with the Lord who saved us. And as he finishes in verse 12, he says again, rejoice in the Lord and give thanks to his holy name. This is the God of creation, the one who could have destroyed humanity, but instead condescended to save it through a son who came down and as we just celebrated over Christmas became God incarnate and be, who, because of God's promises made so long ago sent his son to die for the sins of his people so that they may enjoy, and enjoy God forever. In this life we find moments in which to rejoice. For instance we have times like weddings or baptisms or births or marriages, or winning championships. These are but a foretaste of what it looks like to rejoice, but to rejoice truly in God. Uh, it's a more complete joy that we have as Christians when we come to church every Sunday, or when we get up and when we pray to him. It's something that we know that the people of the outside do not. Uh, we know peace with him. And when all is said and done, when Christ returns, our joy will not only be complete, but our rejoicing will be never-ending. And we will live in the eternal presence of the Lord himself forever. Amen.